0: And I looked up and I saw that my scalp was caught up in the drive shaft of the auger. I was 13 weeks pregnant, and I was on blood thinners, so there was a lot of blood. Two, four, two. Have you responded probe one? We having a lady unconscious.
1: 41320. Hi, I'm Linda Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and this is a podcast series about mateship, about life in the bush, and about the role. The Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in servicing rural communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast.
0: You idiot, why did you even do that? Most people probably don't want to imagine, but I had no scalp and it was similar to how you would remove a helmet. That's how much of my scalp
1: I lost, the whole lot. Accidents. They're never planned for and occasionally they can be life changing. Michelle Dowsett is here to tell us her story. She worked as a schoolteacher and was living on a rural farm in New South Wales with her husband, Bob, and her two young children, Josh and Liv. It wasn't unusual for Michelle to lend a hand when it came to yard work, but on that Sunday in 2009, Michelle suffered an accident that was to change her life permanently. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you. Now, on that Sunday, you just put your two toddlers down to sleep. Tell me a little bit about your Sunday activities that morning.
0: Well, we'd been to a christening on the Saturday where we'd caught up with family. And so Sunday, we were just sort of, you know, relaxing a bit. Bob had to continue sowing the barley. The children and I were just sort of, you know, poking around in the garden, doing a bit of cooking, getting the dinners prepared for the week and just, you know, sort of doing what we do on a Sunday. Um, And obviously, they were a bit tired because we had a, a late night. So I put them down to bed probably, they were asleep on the lounge about maybe three and it was probably about four that I headed down to help out uncle with the emptying or cleaning of the silos. And he needed to get in and out of the silo to shovel the grain into the auger and he just couldn't manage doing both jobs, like turning the auger on and off and shoveling the flat bottom silo because, you know, you sort of have to climb in and out of the silo. So I went down actually to put a Rego sticker on the truck because I knew that he was going to be borrowing our truck and the Reggio sticker was on the bench. So that was the main reason I wandered down there. There was no other reason except for to put the Reggio sticker on the truck. And when I got there, he sort of said, oh, have you got a minute? Are the kids asleep? And I said, yeah, they are. He said, oh, can you just give me a hand here? He said, it's a pain in the bum getting in and out of this silo to turn this auger on and off as it gets jammed. I said, yeah, no worries. What do you, would, would you like me to do? And he said, oh, I'm going to shovel this grain in if you could just turn the auger on and off when and if it gets jammed. I said, yeah, no worries. And I'd worked with augers like heaps of times, like it wasn't as if it was the first time I'd ever used the machine, like I'd used it countless times over the sort of five years that we'd have had the farm and, you know, that I'd been involved in sewing and all that sort of stuff.
1: What does an auger do?
0: Well, an auger is a machine and it's similar to, I guess you could say the inside of it is like a corkscrew and basically it spins around really, really fast on a drive shaft from an external motor and all it does is spins around like a corkscrew and car- carries the grain from one end to the other, so normally uphill. Um, yeah, so that's that's what an auger does. But you know, this one was an older style auger. The corkscrew itself was all encased, but the drive shaft that actually caused it to spin was all exposed. Nowadays, you get augers and they're all covered up and they're all safe, and you'd be very unlucky to get anything caught in it. But we were using a very old style auger.
1: So the auger was carrying the grain from the silo to another location or into the silo,
0: taking it from the silo into the truck that I just put the Rego sticker on. So what happened as you assisted your uncle? Uh, well, he was just in the silo shoveling the grain because it was a flat bottom so obviously the grain wasn't running and he just sort of said to me, can you turn, the, turn it on, turn it off? He was yelling out the door of the silo, turn it on, turn it off. So I just, you know, did that for maybe half an hour or so and we were nearly at the dun- uh, done and it was, it was quite warm. Like inside a silo it was quite hot and for a July day it was quite warm for a winter's day. So we were pretty happy that we were nearly done. What happened next? Well, um, uncle just yelled out. He said, oh, I'm done now. You can turn it off in a minute. I said, yep, yeah, no worries. So I just leaned over to turn the machine off. We'd finished the job um, and that's when I felt the pull on my hair and it just felt like I was basically, it felt similar to, you know, popping a button on your shirt. Um, I, and then I went, oh, my God, that didn't feel right. And I touched, put my hands on my head and I went, oh, no. And I just screamed three times. There was no pain. And I looked up and I saw that my scalp was caught up in the drive shaft of the of the auger.
1: You're kidding. Wow. What was running through your head at the time?
0: Well, I probably can't really tell you exactly what was running through my head because I was swearing, but it was down the lines of, you idiot, because I knew instantly what I had done. Like, I'm a school teacher um, and I teach primary industries, which is a farming-based course. And so I teach safety and we'd spoken to the... I speak to the kids every day about safety and farm safety and what happens, so I knew exactly what had happened Um, and I just basically was in shock, like, you idiot. Like, why did you even do that? So, I mean, I knew what I'd done I thought, like, if I don't keep calm here, I could be in a whole world of trouble. So um, I just sort of went, I couldn't believe it. Like, I really couldn't believe it and I just yelled out to Uncle, I think you better get out here and you best tie your dog up quickly as well. So...
1: What was his reaction in seeing you?
0: Scalped? What, what did he say? The look on his face told the story. Like, you know, he was very calm and he goes, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm fine. I said, I've just had an accident. I'm fine. I'm not in pain. Um, but can you tie your dog up and you c- can you call Bob? I said, because he needs to be here. And I said, and can you make sure that someone goes to the house and make sure that the kids aren't awake and they don't come out? They don't need to see me.
1: Wow. So, so what happened next?
0: Well, then we had to let out our big secret that at the time I was 13 weeks pregnant and I was on blood thinners. So if you can imagine, which most people probably don't want to imagine, but I had no scalp and it was similar to how you would remove a helmet. That's how much of my scalp I lost, the whole lot. Um, and there was a lot of blood. Like, it, you know, it was just running down down my head and I remember that vividly and just wiping it out of my eyes constantly. Um but I knew being on blood thinners that if I panicked, I would lose a lot more blood. So basically I just had to take a deep breath and I just said, look, just make sure that someone's there with the kids, get Bob here and I'm just going to sit quietly here and, you know, call the ambulance and do what you need to do. So, you know, I, I tried to remain very calm and to this day I really don't think that I, you know, that I panicked. I think I, I kept calm and, and I just sort of took in the situation. I knew exactly what I'd done. I knew exactly the risk that I was under um, and having your whole head exposed in that farming situation, I knew there was a massive risk of infection too. So I just wanted to stay where I was with no one touching me, nothing coming anywhere near me so that, you know,
1: I could reduce that risk, I guess. Did you wrap your head in anything or did you leave it open in the air?
0: Just left it open for now um, because we didn't have anything. We had we had nothing to wrap it and it wasn't until the neighbor, they called the neighbours to come and give us a hand and one of them is actually first aid trainer like she trains first she was training first aid at TAFE and I mean there was really no point in applying pressure because you know I just couldn't apply pressure you couldn't apply pressure to that situation I mean there wasn't any any pain but there you know it was just a skull attached and you and so basically what she ended up doing for transport was just sort of wrapping my head in a bit of a towel not the whole lot just to try and stem the blood from running down into my into my eyes. And ears and everywhere else. Okay. So, how long
1: did it take for the ambulance to come?
0: So, it was about 40 minutes when they got there. And obviously, they were in shock too. They hadn't sh- seen an accident like that probably ever and probably never will again. Um, and they just, you know, did their protocol and all that sort of stuff. Um, they load them in the ambulance and they said, well, you know, we can't deal with this here. You're going to have to be flown to Sydney. We're going to get hold of the RFDS and meet them at the airport in West Wyalong. And I went, okay,
1: sounds like a plan. Did they take you to the country hospital first or take you straight to the airstrip?
0: No, they took me into West Wyalong first. They just wanted to make sure that my pain was managed and make sure I had no other injuries. The biggest issue that I had really was they put a neck brace on me, which is protocol. I get that. I knew full well I didn't have a neck injury, but what they didn't take into account is that where my scalp had been removed, the skin at the back of my neck had folded down and there was still live nerves there. So that neck brace caused me a lot of pain. Like I was in a lot of pain with that neck brace. And I ended up taking it off and throwing it out the door, basically, well, chucking it away. And they said, oh, you have to have that on. And I just went, no, I'm not. Um, There's nothing wrong with me with my neck. I'm not wearing it. It's making me sick. And it really was making me sick. So they took me into West Wyalong Hospital and being a country hospital on a Sunday, there really wasn't a lot of staff there. Um, You know, and there was a doctor on call and he came in, he goes, oh, like just his face was sort of, oh my God. Um, And he basically said, look, we called the flying doctors. They're going to have to take you to Sydney. Uh, Is your pain okay? Is anything else okay? And I went, no, I'm all fine. Um, The nurse then had to come and remove my clothes and she couldn't figure out how she was going to get them off. And I think that was a bit of shock too. And I said, can you see what I'm wearing? I'm obviously wearing my Sunday best. And I was wearing like my dirty old farm jumper with holes and dirt and grease and everything all over it. I said, do you have a pair of scissors? Maybe you could just cut it off. So, but I did say what, but don't cut my bra because that's brand new and I don't want to waste it. So uh, So I managed to sort of you know, cut the clothes off and then took my bra off and said to my husband, make sure that goes home because it's brand new. So, um, and, and basically then they transported me from the hospital out to meet the doctors, the South East section Royal Flying Doctor Service from Dubbo.
1: As I mentioned earlier, this podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. Having reliable vehicles is imperative in the harsh Australian outback, and Isuzu have provided D-MAX Utes and MUX SUVs to pull seven large RFDS flight simulators as they engage in school, community, and field day activities for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. These simulators are full-size planes minus the wings, And the Isuzu D-MAX and MUX vehicles are a perfect match for the long-distance heavy towing demands of these RFDS simulators right across Australia. So keep an eye out for them as they travel around each state and we would love to see photos and locations on our Flying Doctor podcast community Facebook page when you see them. Thinking as you walk me through all of this, you were pregnant. Were you aware of the risks to your baby?
0: Once I got on the plane, the doctors said, "Okay, these are the risks." They said, "You know, the massive risk of infection. You are pregnant. You could lose your child. Um, You know, you may be in hospital for a long time. What do you want us to do?" And I'd said to them straight away, "Just, just get me home. That's the only thing I want." And they said, "You know, know, they made sure that I was really aware of the risks and." I don't think I said it at the time, but realistically my brain was like, you know what, I've got two children who really need their mum. Like this one that I'm pregnant with, yes, I will still love her if she makes it, Um, but if she doesn't, you know what, it's going to be a lot better off for these two children to actually have a mum than not.
1: Michelle, what do you remember of that RFDS flight?
0: I remember the doctor was really good. He was really calm. He was really good. He was quite good-looking too, actually, Um, (laughs) you know, so... (laughs) And the nurse, Nathan, he was really good, he was really calm, he, you know, talked to us about what we were doing and, you know, we had a conversation about how I was really cranky at myself. I said, I can't believe that we've got 100 acres to go and would have been finished sewing and I could have went home and, you know, hung out and done what I did, you know, do what I normally do. I said, oh, I'm so cranky. Um, And I knew it was coming up to school holidays too because at that stage I was working as a teacher two days a week and, you know, we wanted to go on holidays and do the things that we do after after sewing and in the school holidays and things. So I was I remember having a bit of a talk to him about this and that. I did have to remind them that my, you know, my scalp was in the esky with the peas and corn and make sure we don't forget that. So,
1: yeah. It's amazing, Michelle, that at the time of the accident, despite the shock and the blood and everything else, you had the good sense to get your husband to grab your scalp and place it in the esky. Because there was no ice available, and you only had bags of frozen peas and corn, they did the job and kept it cold until you got to surgery. You underwent fifteen hours of surgery to try and reattach your scalp to your head. When you woke up with your mother sitting beside your bed, what did she say to you?
0: Um, Mum was pretty upset, and at that particular time, I couldn't speak because I obviously had tubes and stuff everywhere. They tried to put they had to put me in a, in an coma in the end, but at this point I was awake. I couldn't really talk, and I knew Mum was upset. And I just grabbed hold of mum's hand and I just wrote with my finger, don't worry, I'm okay, or something, you know, something like that. I wrote that on my hand and that's when mum lost it. She just started crying, as mums do, you know. And I just wrote back on her hand, don't cry, I'm okay. So obviously it was a very, very worrying time. I think within that 15 hours I'm 100% certain that the doctors actually had said you need to prepare yourself, this could end badly. Um, and she may not come out of this. Unfortunately, those doctors didn't really know me and what I'm made of. So,
1: yeah. Did your young children come to visit you in the hospital as you were recovering?
0: They did, but not straight away. I was in intensive care for a, uh, maybe about six or seven days, and in that time I'd have had a couple of other surgeries as well. I had a massive bandage on my head, and maybe I when I went into the normal ward, they... Um, you know, they said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to see the kids. And they did, you know, they brought the kids down. Josh was okay. He could recognise my voice. He looked at me like I was a bit funny looking, which I was, you know, similar to the, you know, Mario brother on the Mario Kart game, I guess, with the big giant mushroom head. Um, And then, but Livy, who was a lot younger, she was very wary and it took her a long time, a long time to realise that it was mum. So...
1: Yeah. That is very hard.
0: Yeah, I remember when they left, I was so happy, so, so happy to see them. And when they left, I just cried and cried and cried. I just wanted my
1: children near me. So despite best efforts by the surgeons, the scalp did not take and grafts then had to be done from your thighs. How did that impact you?
0: Uh, look, I've never really been a cosmetic sort of, sort of person. Like, you know, it was just hair and... You know, I really didn't look after it to start with, and when they said, "Look, you're never going to ha- have hair again," my attitude was, "Well, don't look after it anyway." Um, so I wasn't too too worried about the whole hair situation, um, and they just sort of said to me, "Look, you know, we had to remove the whole thing. We've got to put a skin graft." on your head you will never have hair again and you're probably you know more than likely not going to have any feeling in your head either. And I said, well you know what the alternative of not being here for these two beautiful children is a lot worse so I can live with that so so they went ahead and did the did the skin graft um, they basically I guess you could say they ring barked my whole thigh to use that uh, that skin on my head um, and I if I ever have to have another skin graft in my entire life, I'm just going to say no. Like, it was the worst experience ever. Like, you know, I had two children naturally. I would have another 35 children naturally than, than a skin graft. Like, yeah, it it hurt. Like, you know, and I don't know whether anyone would know or would remember, but when you're a kid and your grandparents or your parents had those vinyl lounges in the summer and when you jumped up because it was hot it felt like your skin start, peeled off, well, imagine that a thousand times worse constantly. Like that's what, it just hurt a lot. But, you know, it got better. It only took sort of two weeks and it was a bit better and, you know, I was nearly sort of home. So it was not too bad in the end. I just, I just remember the excruciating pain. And every time I tried to walk, I'd nearly faint with the blood rushing to the area and it was, it was not nice. It was not pretty.
1: Well, that's horrible. Oh, so I guess the best news is that your baby survived you had a healthy baby girl that you called Emma. She experienced this whole accident from the womb. So what does she know about your injuries now that she's much older? She knows the
0: whole story. We've been through it a thousand times. Um, you know, she she knows how lucky she is to be here. Um, and basically she is a fighter. Like she's been a fighter since that day and she hasn't stopped. She's just, she sticks up for what she believes in. She is, that's who she is. Like that's, you know, she's, It's definitely part of her makeup,
1: I think, yeah. Do you think this injury has changed your outlook and attitude about life?
0: Oh, most definitely. I mean, you know, you used to sweat the small stuff and sort of panic a bit if you didn't get things done and, you know, you'd worry but, you know what, it was basically a near-death experience and it really makes you appreciate the things that you have in life. Like, and you know, if you don't get the lawn mowed today, who cares? If the kids don't clean up their room, who cares, you know? We'll get through it. We'll figure it out. We'll deal with it. Like it's, you know, there's a, there's a lot worse things that could happen. So we just, you know, life throws you curveballs and, you know, what do you do? Do you, do you let them hit you and knock you down or you do, do you catch them and you hold them in your hand, you think about life for a while and you go, nah, I'm done and throw it back and say, hit me with another one. And that seems to be the story of my life, to be honest.
1: <laughs> you are inspirational, Michelle. Have you made any resolutions or decisions as a result of the accident?
0: I guess I have in a sort of a way and it's just like live every day like, like it's the last. Like you just don't know when it is, you know. Get out there, have fun, talk to new people, you know, do dumb stuff. Like it's, you know, the kids and I are always doing dumb stuff. Like, you know, I think back at, at my childhood and I did dumb stuff and you know what, I'm still here and the kid and the kids and I, we just love doing things together and we just, you know, just live life basically. Don't worry about what other people think, you know, just
1: just get on with it. Michelle, thank you so much for telling us your story. Your experience is beyond what most people can comfortably face and yet here you are. It is truly inspiring. Thank you and I'm so pleased that RFDS was there to help you on that day and I'm thrilled that you and your family are well and flourishing.
0: No, well, thank you. And like I've said a thousand times, like... Like I owe the Royal Flying Doctors my life because being out in a rural area, if if they're not there, there's no way I'd be sitting here talking to you 11 years later. Like there is no way. Like I just, you know, I, I will give back to the Flying Doctors as much as I can as often as I can for the rest of my life and I'm pretty certain my children will too because they just appreciate what the Flying Doctors do, how they do it, you know, and I've got Josh who's talking about being a pilot. So, you know, maybe we could push him in that direction and, you know, Emma wants to be a doctor so you know anything's possible but like I said the Royal Flying Doctors saved my life as they do with many others. My story may be a little bit extraordinary but you know what there's people that are a lot worse off than I am and I'm still here thanks to the Flying Doctors and there are so many people other people that are here because of the Flying Doctors like I just can't I can't express my gratitude as much as I would like to.
1: Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with someone who you think will love it too. Thank you for listening to the Flying Doctor podcast. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Izuzu Ute Australia. Izuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.